Thomas uh, Richburg always told me to put my bottle of water on the songbook because the songbook's cheaper than the varnish on the podium. So that's been tough for me to get used to, but it was pretty good advice. Uh, I want to thank Kane for the prayer on my behalf. It is also my prayer that what I have put together tonight uh, will be something that we can all glean something out of. Uh, I've been accused of having a unique thought process. I don't know if that's good or bad yet, so maybe we can work through that and all of us uh, get something out of tonight's lesson. I want to talk about how we represent Christ. We have heard lessons about being an ambassador for Christ before. Uh, it's not an uncommon thread. But there's some things uh, that I want to focus on that you may have not considered before. An ambassador is someone that is sent to represent a country, a person, or maybe even a cause. You are all ambassadors. Whether you think so or not, it's the truth. All of us here that have been baptized into Christ's death are representatives of what Christ stands for, what he is and what he stands for. So plain and simply, are you best representing what Jesus stands for? If an ambassador for the U.S. goes into a foreign country, every action, every word, the way he's dressed, everything is meant to represent the United States. If he lies, he lies on behalf of the United States. If he has poor manners and is rude or has crude language and humor, he represents that Americans are rude and have crude language. He is supposed to represent the best that the U.S. has to offer or desires. Most hold a bachelor's degree in political science, international relations, history, or another related discipline. They often have uh, foreign language courses in their studies. An ambassador is the highest ranking diplomat serving in a foreign country. Ambassador Friedrich Lohr is a faculty member in the Northeastern, Northeastern's Global Studies and International Relations Programs. He says, I quote, an ambassador is to endeavor to almost be a jack of all trades. Diplomats have to learn to be level-headed, dynamic yet modest, curious yet disciplined, circumspect yet reliable, proactive yet unobtrusive, knowledgeable in many fields, but no wisecracks. Sounds like a pretty serious job. As I was reading this the first time, I thought this is a really good description of what a Christian should be. Let's read that again as if we were ambassadors for the kingdom of God. Christians have to learn to be level-headed, dynamic, yet modest, curious, yet disciplined, circumspect, yet reliable, proactive, yet unobtrusive, knowledgeable in many fields, but no wisecracks. I think that if a Christian is all of these things, he will do well at spreading the gospel. The problem is that we so often fail to realize, or maybe we don't really believe that we're ambassadors or representatives of so many different things. See, when I go to visit family of mine in New Mexico, I often get reminded that I have a Texan accent. Apparently, no matter how hard I try to sound proper and articulate, I still sound like a 19th century uneducated cowboy to these people. And that's just five hour drive away. Uh, what if I were to put on my best boots, my spurs, my 10 gallon hat, and a belt buckle the size of a hubcap and went to some place in Canada? My behavior there when I get there is going to represent Texas to these people that probably very rarely have visitors from Texas. If I act like an idiot when I get there, it won't be forgotten. 
The things I do and say will affect how other Texans get treated and how well they are received in the future. It's not hard to figure out what my point is in all of this, and it's nothing you haven't heard before. It's just a reminder of how important it is that we always behave as Christians should, in all places, in all times, around all people, and especially on the internet, where there will be a record of probably everything you've ever said for all eternity. As a matter of fact, the internet is probably only second to the books that are spoken of in Revelation 20 and 12, where John says, the books were open and we were to be judged by the things written in them. One of those books very, very may, may very well be Facebook with our name written on the bottom. You know, it's easy to dismiss sermons like this. Most of us are probably pretty good at watching our tongue. Most of us are not actively partaking in things or going places we shouldn't. Overall, we're pretty good people, right? Well, I want to explain to you a problem I have, and it's actually a problem that, in my opinion, I think a lot of us here have as well, although you may not realize it. Proverbs 22 and verse 1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. See, that's the problem that I have. I, I was not born with a good name. Much like the Canaanites are seen in a negative light, even to the 10th generation because of the sins of their father Ham, I'm often seen in a negative light because of my father in the first generation. See, that really affects my thought processes and actions on a daily basis. I try to be as careful as possible in my daily life. I really try to control my thoughts, my actions, and my natural responses, which are usually the wrong ones. My whole thought process in business, friendships, and family is to try to make my last name mean something for my children more than what it meant for me. Now, there were several years that I was the one dragging my own name through the mud. I'm, I'm not just up here bashing my father or other relatives. I'm not trying to play the victim card. I get told by church members on several occasions that they're proud of me, they think I'm doing a good job, and, and they don't look at me differently based upon who my family is or, or my past. And, and I appreciate that very much. It means a lot to hear that from people. But my whole point in bringing this up is so that you can understand what motivates me. Because a lot of the things need to motivate you as well. Just like I said, my whole thought process in trying extra, extra hard to make my name uh, better in the future than it was in the past it needs to be applied to Christianity as well. See, we all here have the same last name. We should not divide or have our sole identity in the last name that we were born with or maybe married into. Every single one of our last names should be Christian. John chapter 1 and verse 12, but as many as received God, received him, speaking of Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. How many times do we have it enforced and reinforced in the Bible that we are a family? All of us here that have been baptized into Christ's death are adopted. I bet you haven't quite heard it put this way before, but the last name Christian has kind of made a bad name for itself. You have to consider that someone that we're trying to spread the gospel to that has no Christian background, whose parents didn't have a Christian background, they have immediate access to everything negative about Christianity through the media, internet, and peers' opinions, and very limited access to true, genuine, first-century-based Christianity and information. I assure you that as someone that was not raised in the church, it is, it is difficult to understand how hard it is to get the help people need to properly understand and apply scripture. 
If you don't believe me, then I want us to take a moment and look at how much we value consumer reviews. You know, the reviews. I'm assuming that several of you here today are like me. When I buy anything, when I go anywhere, I check the reviews first. What could be a better way to find out if something is worth buying than the thoughts of a person that's already bought it? And again, if you're like me, I put a lot of faith in what these people have to say. We needed a refrigerator recently. We picked one out, and I read the reviews, and two or three people said that the ice maker broke easily. So guess what? I didn't buy it. As a matter of fact, I put so much faith in what these people said that if you were to ask me my opinion on said refrigerator, I would give the same advice and opinion and present it as fact even though I never even owned it. If that analogy makes sense to you, and you could see yourself doing and saying the same thing, then I ask you, do you think the same thing happens with Christianity? When someone stumbles across or is presented with Christianity, do you think they read the reviews? Let's read a few off of Google, the same place we made our decision on the refrigerator. I found some articles about pedophiles in positions of leadership. Here's some stuff about churches bringing in millions in donations and not helping the communities they're a part of during disasters. Oh, and this says the Bible tells us to hit our kids. Uh, there's a lot of history here, too. Do you know the Nazis were Christian? And the whole Holy Inquisition thing was pretty awful. Yeah, I'm not buying it. What, we can wholeheartedly trust people when it comes to refrigerator, but when it comes to Christianity, these reviews are wrong? The problem is they're not wrong. These things have actually happened. Do you ever, <clears throat> this is just scratching the surface of the things that were done by people that identify themselves in Christ. Do you ever find yourself mad at non-Christians, maybe even mock them? I think we need to be more understanding of how someone could make the decision to be against Christianity and use that information to better equip ourselves to be ambassadors for the truth that is Christ rather than the garbage information that is much more readily available. I want to take some time and really break down and cover some of the information that is out there on Christianity and the things that have been done in the name of Christianity. I do not intend to mock anyone or anything, and I do not intend to call out specific groups. As a matter of fact, I intend to do the exact opposite. My whole goal is to bring attention to everything done under the name Christianity. Because the secular world, the world of atheism, it has a very good and sound argument. And that is, if all of you Christians are reading the same book, how come you can't agree? Before I get started, the things I'm going to cover are going to put a bad taste in your mouth. Uh, they're going to be like fingers on the chalkboard. They're going to offend you. They're going to make you feel the need to defend your faith. That's the entire goal of this sermon. I want you to feel what I feel, an overwhelming need to redeem your name, the name Christian. I want you to feel the shame of the things that have been done in the name of Christianity and refocus the emotion and energy into an overwhelming desire to live and spread true Christianity and the true love of Christ. For this to work, you have to wholeheartedly put yourself in the shoes of someone that has lived the life outside of religion and really is an outsider looking in. For the sake of this sermon, I will be referring to the people, the actions, and the movement done as just Christians or Christianity because that's how someone on the outside looking in sees it. I actually have a family member that was born and raised in another country uh, as Buddhist. 
Uh, when I talk to him, it really helps me understand how muddy Christianity is in the world. He doesn't see me as Church of Christ. He just sees me as a Christian. Baptist, Church of Christ, Catholic, it is all the same to him. So I ask you to not be dismissive of what I, of what I have put together here tonight. So let's get started. This is uh, basically going to be a quick history lesson. The earliest accounts of the evil things that Christians have done go back, go to what is known as the Constantinian shift, which is basically the time period of the 4th century AD in which the Roman Emperor Constantine I, or some called, sometimes called Constantine the Great, he started the process of Christianity shifting from a persecuted religion to a persecuting religion. It's this time period when the emblem of the cross became known as a symbol of violence to Jews and Muslims. The statement of Jesus in Matthew 10 and 34, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. This became a rallying cry for many Christians in this time frame. When you couple this statement with misapplied and resurrected Old Testament time violence, such as God's commands to the Israelites to destroy the enemies of God, such as the Canaanites, it created a recipe for disaster. Christians in this time period often justified acts of violence towards heathens or barbarians as actually acts of love towards the world, kind of a greater good philosophy. This time frame is often summarized by the term just war, or quite simply war or violence that could be justified. Starting in about 1095 at the Council of Clermont, Pope Urbane II declared that just war could rise to the level of holy war. This was a major transformation in the ideology of war, shifting the justification of war from being not only just, but spiritually beneficial. This marked the transition of how a culture formerly dedicated to fulfilling the injunction of love thy neighbor as thyself, could move to a point where it sanctioned the use of violence against alien both outside and inside society. In the 12th century, Bernard of Clairvaux wrote, The knight of Christ may strike with confidence and die yet more confidently, for he serves Christ when he strikes and saves himself when he falls. When he inflicts death, it's to Christ's profit, and when he suffers death, it's to his own gain. <clears throat> These ideals and beliefs rapidly evolved into genocidal warfare. Again, much like the Old Testament destruction of the Canaanites by the Israelites. <clears throat> now, anyone that knows their history knows what comes next, the Inquisition. Probably the single most disgusting and horrible stain on Christianity. The Inquisition, also referred to as the Holy Inquisition, was a group of institutions within the church whose aim was to combat heresy. Torture and violence were used by the Inquisition for eliciting confessions from heretics. The Inquisition started in 12th century France to combat religious dissent. The inquisitorial courts from this time until the mid-15th century together are known as the Medieval Inquisition. Inquisitors would arrive in a town and announce their presence, giving citizens a chance to admit to heresy. Those who confessed received a punishment ranging from a pilgrimage to a whipping. Those accused of heresy were forced to testify if the heretics did not confess. Torture and execution were inescapable. Heretics were not allowed to face accusers, 
received no counsel and were often victims of false accusations. The ironic thing is that many people that were tortured and executed had already converted to Christianity, albeit they converted to Christianity because they were afraid of being tortured and executed. They still didn't escape the fate because more often than not, they were accused of still secretly practicing Judaism or Muslim faiths. Hangings and burning heretics at the stake, even though they had confessed, often because it meant high-ranking accusers could confiscate the lands of the accused. We often have the belief that the Inquisition was just a medieval thing, when in fact the Inquisition started in the 1100s and went on for about 700 years until it's generally agreed upon to have ended uh, by the early 1800s, which uh, was surprising to me as well. There was 700 years of torturing people to make them convert to Christianity, then killing them anyway, torturing people that had already converted to Christianity and killing them too, and then, of course, you have the torturing and killing of these people that were just a different type of Christian. You, you see, you have all this access uh, to historical information uh, just right at our fingertips, especially in the modern day of the Internet. I hope you can see how easy it is for someone that has no background in Christianity to already dismiss Christianity as something they want nothing to do with. So what has modern Christianity done to improve things? Not much. I'm going to stay on a tighter time scale now that we're getting into more recent history. We already established that the last deaths attributed to the Inquisition were in the early 1800s. Christians in America now have a more specific group of people to persecute, the Native Americans. Along with whites, among whites, there were two common religiously based attitudes towards Native American. One was expressed in the notion of manifest destiny the idea that Christians had a God-given mission to expand their civilization and its ideals of liberty and democracy across the entire North American continent. From this point of view, Indians who occupied valuable lands could be removed or exterminated with few moral qualms. A second point of view held that the Indians did not have to be seen as a hindrance to progress, rather they were simply ignorant heathens that could become part of American society if they were allowed to benefit from the civilization instructions of whites. The first step towards civilization was believed to be a conversion to Christianity. Although earlier missionaries to the Indians had produced few converts and much more hatred for the supposed or so-called Christian ideals. See, what is becoming clear throughout Christian history is that when there were people that were possibly trying to spread Christianity through genuine and honest intentions, there were tenfold more people that were coming along also that only had financial gain in mind. These people, starting with Simon the Sorcerer that we can read about in Acts 8, 9 through 25, to the false accusers of the Inquisition, to now Americans with this manifest destiny nonsense. Christianity has become a means to an end. It has simply become another tool to gain land, money, or influence, and in modern times we will see how it has only continued to get worse. But let's say on our consecutive time frame for the sake of the lesson. By the 1840s, 50s, and of course the 1860s, Christianity had now been sucked into another controversial subject, slavery. Slaveholders had two favorite texts in the Bible that were used to justify slavery. Genesis 9, 18 through 27, which is the account of Noah 
cursing the Canaanites to become servants. Somehow, the Christian slaveholders of the day were convinced that Ham and the Canaanites were black and Shem and Japheth were white, even though they had the same mother and father. This was actually a very popular teaching in the churches in the South and very easy to disprove. It was much easier to just try to use it to justify slavery. Again, just another example of trying to use Christianity for financial gain. The other text is from Ephesians 6, 5 through 8. Servants, sometimes translated uh, slaves, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in singleness of your heart as unto Christ. The rest of the Old Testament was often mined by pro-slavery Christians for examples of proving that slavery was common among the Israelites. The New Testament was largely ignored, except in the sense of pointing out that nowhere did Jesus condemn slavery. Furthermore, the story of Philemon, the runaway who Paul returned to his master, was often quoted. I just want to take a moment to discuss what slavery in the Bible was. The majority of the accounts of slavery in the Bible that were not condemned are best described in a modern sense as sometimes somebody who may have gone bankrupt. There's not scripture in the New Testament that allows for someone to be put in slavery simply because of they were a different race or a different color of skin. A lot of slavery in the Bible was a voluntary pledge of servitude in order to pay off a debt. Basically, when you can't pay for your car, house, credit cards, whatever, your assets are liquidated and whatever you owe your debtor is to be worked off. Basically, you're sweeping the floor and taking out the trash at Wells Fargo. In fact, there were people that were not in debt that pledged themselves to being slaves. If you were of the belief that you could not survive or thrive on your own, you just weren't very successful or smart or business savvy or whatever the reason was, you could pledge yourself to a successful or wealthy person. The terms of these pledges were usually lifelong. It meant that you had three square meals and a roof over your head and a sense of security in your life when you felt like you couldn't provide it for yourself. In return, you did whatever labor tasks were instructed of you. A lot of times, these relationships between these two parties were mutually beneficial in good spirits, and it was generally a good institution. I just wanted to take a moment to discuss the differences between these two very different types of slavery that often get lumped into one. I think it helps us understand that the type of slavery that was permitted in the Bible, if I can be allowed to say that, was not at all the same thing that American slave owners were doing to blacks and some Native Americans. As I was putting this lesson together, I, I truthfully did not set out to show that Christianity has been hijacked for financial gain. But where there's smoke, there's fire. This is a quote from Bishop Stephen Elliott from the mid-1850s, and he states, Critics of slavery should consider whether, by their interference with this institution, speaking of American slavery, they may not be checking and impeding a work which is manifestly providential, which is basically saying approved of by God. For nearly a hundred years, the English and American churches have been striving to civilize and Christianize Western Africa, and to what result? Around Sierra Leone and the neighborhood of Cape Palmas, a few neighborhoods have been made Christians, few natives have been made Christians, and some nations have been partially civilized. But what a small number in comparison with the thousands, nay, I say millions, who have learned the way to heaven and who have been made to know their Savior 
through the means of African slavery, educating for earth and heaven in the so vilified southern states, learning the very best lessons for a semi-barbarous people, lessons of self-control, of obedience, of perseverance, of adaptation, of means to ends, learning above all where their weakness lies, and how they may acquire strength for the battle of life. These considerations satisfy me with their condition and assure me that, that this is the best relation they can for the present be made to occupy. I know that was tough because I didn't write it. <laughs> it's hard to read, but I don't know about you, but the first time that I read through that, I kind of wanted to puke. The audacity to say that I'm, I'm such a good Christian, I'm going to support enslaving three or four million people to teach them how to get to heaven and, you know, make some money in the process. Now, as I continue on in this lesson, I want to take a moment and remind you that I'm classifying and generalizing everything evil done under the name of Christianity. Again, I'm doing that on purpose because we have to understand how someone on the outside looking in sees Christianity. It takes an, a lot of effort to put yourself in someone else's shoes. You have to disconnect yourself from your personal character, your personal experiences, your own culture and understanding. In a way, you have to pretend that you don't know the things you know. Because I said in the beginning, to someone on the outside looking in and deciding what they think or believe about Christianity, this information discussed today is much more readily available than a true understanding and proper application of worship and true religion. So moving on to the next subject, again, we have to hold our nose and grit our teeth. Leftover hatred from the Civil War had hit a boiling point by the late 1800s and early 1900s. Many white supremacists, again, were all too eager to drag the name of Christianity through the mud. They burned crosses, beat and killed blacks, attacked other Christians that did not believe the way they did. They attacked Jews, countless other atrocities, all while claiming to be Christians. In the 1930s and 40s, the growing Nazi power in Germany coexisted with Christianity. In fact, the population of Germany in 1933 was around 60 million. Almost all Germans were Christian, <clears throat> belonging either to the Roman Catholic, which had about 20 million members, or Protestant, which was about 40 million members. The Jewish community in Germany alone in 1933 was about 1% of the total population of the country. So how did Christians in the churches in Germany respond to the Nazi regime and its laws, particularly to the persecution of the Jews? The anti-Jewish Nazi ideology converged with anti-Semitism that was historically widespread throughout Europe at the time and had deep roots in Christian history. For many Christians, traditional interpretations of religious scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, seem to support these prejudices. The attitudes and actions of German Catholics and Protestants during the Nazi era were shaped not only by their religious beliefs, but by other factors as well, including the backlash against the Weimar Republic and the political, economic, and social changes in Germany that occurred in the 1920s, anti-communism, nationalism, resentment towards the international community in the wake of World War I, which Germany lost and was forced to pay heavy reparations. These were some of the reasons why most Christians in Germany welcomed the rise of Nazism in 1933. They were also persuaded by the statement of positive Christianity in Article 24 of the 1920 Nazi Party platform, which read, 
We demand the freedom of all religious confessions in the state insofar as they do not jeopardize the state's existence or conflict with the manners and moral sentiments of the Germanic race. The party as such upholds the, view, the point of view of a positive Christianity without tying itself confessionally to any one confession. It combats the Jewish material spirit home, you know, 1% of the population, and abroad, and is convinced that a permanent recovery of our people can be achieved only from within on the basis of the common good before the individual good. Despite the open anti-Semitism of this statement and the linkage between confessional freedom and a nationalistic, racialized understanding of morality, many Christians in Germany at the time read this as an affirmation of Christian values. In fact, all countries on both sides that participated in World War II with the exception of Japan and the Soviet Union almost unanimously identified themselves as Christians. If you're a person that doesn't like history, you're probably not having a good time right now. Um, or if you just think you have a hard time reading or understanding it, I would beg of you to at least pay attention to what has happened here in this account of the rise of the Nazis. This was 1933 when this so-called Christian value statement was made. So that's before any of the atrocities that the Nazis are actually known for had taken place. Twelve years later would be the end of World War II and the summary of everything we know about what the Nazis actually stood for. It's important that we do not attribute Jesus Christ to any earthly country or political movement. Affirmation of Christian values does not apply to Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, and certainly not Nazis. None of these movements are ever going to be the Christians' champions. We are pilgrims. That means that we really don't belong here in America. We are just passing through. 1 Peter 2 verse 11 says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. When we say that we want our country to have a thriving economy, cheap gas and luxury, and summarize by saying we just want it to return to Christian principles, that doesn't make a thriving economy, cheap gas, and luxury part of Christian principles. Philippians 3 verse 20 says our citizenship is in heaven. As we move on to the civil rights era of about 1954 to 1968, we have more of the same, uh, this time Christians persecuting other Christians. There were 11 major church bombings or burnings that took place in this time frame alone. Now, in modern times, as we approach a point where violence in the name of Christianity is not the main perversion, financial gain is. We've already covered some of Christianity being used to make money or material gain, such as the Inquisition, where accusers often gain the lands of the accused. In modern times, it's just good business. In fact, the most recent studies show that Christianity is making about $380 billion a year. Why kill and steal in the name of God when you can package him and sell him over and over again? <clears throat> now, I realize I just turned on a fire hose of straight-up garbage and force-fed it to y'all in the last 15 minutes. It's overwhelming, and our first instinct is to disconnect ourselves from it. After all, who would want to own all of that? 
I really hope you didn't just check out and dismiss this quick history lesson as just something that other people did that has no bearing on you. Let's pretend that nine out of 10 people in the last 2,000 years did all of these atrocities in the name of God. If you're the one in 10, what are you doing to represent the true God and Jesus to those in your life? It's probably way worse than nine out of 10, but even if it's not, consider this. If a person in Canada met nine Texans and all nine Texans slapped them across the face, you realize how hard it is going to be for you to have to overcome and earn that person's trust? To prove to him that all Texans are like that? Oh, and by the way, convince him to move here as well. See, this whole lesson was to show us about how much of an uphill battle we have when spreading the gospel. I hope it has helped us understand how someone in the world may see Christianity. We need to wake up out of complacency, out of indifference. We need to ensure that we are not lukewarm. We need to be on fire for true Christianity. We really need to take every opportunity to pour ourselves out for everyone and anyone. If Christianity has been known in a negative light for being about financial gain, then we should ensure that we are not living a life that is about financial gain. If Christianity has been known or associated with violence, we need to be willing to practice one of the most well-known Christian principles of turning the other cheek. How much more could we do for Christianity than to just let someone do us wrong and be okay with it? Matthew 5 and verse 14, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. If we have a go-along and get-along attitude and we don't want to ruffle any feathers or draw attention to ourselves and don't actually shine out as lights in the world, then we will be lumped in with all those people that have done evil things while claiming to be Christians because we have no works to show that we're any different. I started out this lesson by defining an ambassador. We need to make sure that our desires, opinions, our businesses, everything, takes the lowest position in our lives to ensure that Christ is exalted. If we are lazy and have the habit of doing the bare minimum at our jobs, we're showing our employers that Christians are lazy. Colossians 3, verse 22, Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of the heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be, be, will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. As a business owner, if I have a reputation of being self-serving, I'm showing that Christians are self-serving. If every business transaction I have to talk someone down to their bottom dollar, squeeze every last dollar out of every business transaction, argue for the 99-cent version instead of paying a dollar, I'm hurting the church in the worst ways. Someone who feels the squeeze every time they do business with you can be one of the most distasteful things there is. If that's how we run our businesses, anything we are associated with becomes distasteful to them as well including the church. As an employer, it's important that I'm making sure to pay my employees a good wage. Somehow, the person that will do the job for the lowest amount is the person setting the standard. 
So on one hand, you have an employee that will work for $7.25 an hour. The bare minimum pay usually only buys the bare minimum. You know, a lot of times it's someone that may have a drinking, lying, or stealing problem. Now, on the other hand, you have a person that's honest and hardworking, but we're not going to pay him any more than $7.25 an hour because if he won't do it, someone else will. You know, the first guy. We need to make sure that we're paying our employees a good wage, something that is actually going to get them ahead in life. If we pay the bare minimum, expect the maximum, and just use our employees as tools or ladder rungs, we are hurting ourselves in the long run, and we are hurting the church. The scriptures are pretty blunt and harsh in that regard. James 5, verse 1 says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived on earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. Business always works out best when every transaction is mutually beneficial. A good wage for good work and good work for a good wage. Part of my business endeavors is a farm store. It has really given me insight to how many different types of employers and employees that come through my doors. For the most part, the farmers that pay a good wage pay for their employees' drinks and snacks, allow them to use their farm trucks for private use. These are the employers that have their employees' hearts. These guys have nothing but respect for their bosses. They're willing to work the long hours. They often have worked for them for many years and have nothing but good things to say about them. On the other hand, the employers that pay the bare minimum, expect the maximum, won't even buy them a cold drink. These are the employees that are always disgruntled, unmotivated, and usually leave after a short period of time. These farmers go through new employees every year or two, while the other guys have loyal, hard workers for many years. It's really taught me a lot about how to treat people. <clears throat> Those of us that have employees, we need to examine ourselves, and if we don't have any former employees that left employment on good terms, that's a good indication that the employer is the problem. Even if you have a legitimate reason for firing someone, like maybe they stole from you, we should always examine ourselves in any and every altercation to see if there's something that we could have done differently. Take a pet dog, for example. Let's say he kills and eats one of your chickens. Sometimes dogs do that. And sometimes they do it because they were not fed enough. And like everything else I've pointed out, if none of your previous employees left on good terms, it hurts you, but it also hurts the church that you represent and the God you're an ambassador for. <clears throat> it's like I said earlier, if the experiences people have with you are distasteful, then anything and everything you're associated with, like the church, is going to be distasteful to them as well. In my experience and opinion, if I'm going to hire someone for, let's say, 32000 a year, it's best if I get it in my head that they're actually going to cost me about 40000 a year. Now, that probably isn't true for all lines of work, but the ones I have experience in, like farming and construction, it is true. When you have large equipment, trucks, trailers, tools, and raw materials, mistakes are going to be made, things are going to be broken, Employees are going to use company gas to go get groceries in. 
It's just best if you expect things like that and be okay with them within reason. You know, I don't think anyone here today has necessarily been violent in the name of Christianity, but I think many people, certainly including myself, have been very confrontational when it comes to religious practices and beliefs. I, I realize it's not scripture, but I want to read the description of a good ambassador again. Ambassadors have to learn to be level-headed, dynamic, yet modest, curious, yet disciplined, circumspect, yet reliable, proactive, yet unobtrusive, knowledgeable in many fields, but no wisecracks. I'm ashamed to realize that I have often failed in scenarios of evangelism. Instead of level-headed, I'm often pig-headed. Instead of proactive, I'm reactive. Instead of being knowledgeable, I'm ignorant. And I am, in fact, often a sarcastic wisecrack, but I'm going to blame that one on my in-laws. I think if we're honest, the lack of humility and an abundance of pride is a serious problem for some of us, and that does not make for good ambassadors for God. I hope I've convinced you tonight that every single person here is an ambassador for God. When we leave here tonight and wake up tomorrow, every single one of us is going to represent God to someone. Co-workers, employers, employees, fellow students. I hope I've made you realize that you have your work cut out for you too. There are many false ambassadors that have come before you and will probably come after you as well. It makes it so important that we are the best examples that we can be. I want to challenge you to own all the garbage that has been done in the name of Christianity that we read about tonight. Don't dismiss it as someone else's problem. If you'll own it, as if the things we read about today were done by you in the past or by people in your immediate family, it will motivate you to strive to show a more perfect example of Christianity. If you dismiss it and say to yourself, that was stuff by, done by other people that said they were Christian, but they really weren't then you might be leaving here today indifferent and complacent. Anytime we're not willing to recognize that we could do better tomorrow than we did today, regardless of what the motivation is, then it's just a step away from being lukewarm. Galatians 5 verse 22 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, let us strive to apply each one of these attributes in every interaction we have going forward. It's just a couple of sentences. Write it down on a sticky note and put it on your fridge. Put it on the dash of your car, write it on the palm of your hand. Whatever you have to do to help you represent Christianity the best way you can. This is what I have prepared this evening. I, I realize it was kind of an unusual, unusual subject and maybe somewhat of a depressing one. The honest and true simple version is that Jesus Christ did in fact die a cruel death on the cross so that every single one of us could be forgiven of our sins and have a chance with him, that eternal life with him in heaven. If you believe that, then we beg of you to come and be baptized. Romans verse 4 says, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised, to walk, raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. Everyone and anyone here today can have access to that newness of life. But we also read in Mark 16, verse 16, He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. So I ask that if you do not believe, come, please visit with me after the services. It can be privately if you wish. 
Let's study the scriptures together and do everything we can to help you believe in Jesus. If I can't help you or answer the questions you have, then we can get you with one of the elders or one of the members here today that can help you. So again, if there's anyone here today that would like to be baptized or needs the prayers of the church for any problem or heartache, please come forward and sit on the front seat as we sing the song that's been selected.